You are now listening to the May 5th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's program includes Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. We will listen to a praise song and begin our program with Christianese 101. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine.
can only imagine When all I would do Is forever Forever worship you I can only imagine. Hello, everyone. My name is Grace, and I am your host for the Christianese 101 program. In this fast paced world, we are quickly forgetting the nature and characteristics of God. So today, we will discuss. On one of those characteristics, justice. When you hear the word justice, it often makes you think of righteousness, judgment, or equity. The word justice is derived from two Hebrew words, mishpat and shadaka. Mishpat has the meaning of judgment and reign. Shadaka means righteousness, virtue, and holiness, and God loves them both. God asks this of those who rule over his people. Therefore, justice means a combination of equity and righteousness. However, equity has two different translations, one perspective being secular and the other being biblical. We impulsively have a notion that equity means treating people equally, and we consider this to be fair. For example, if three people were to share a loaf of bread, then we would have to cut it into three precisely equal slices in order to be considered fair. Of course, the justice of God also contains this meaning. However, there is another meaning that we need to understand. Let's take a look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 36. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. A balance, weight, ephah, and hin are all tools used to measure the weight and volume of something. This verse states that God wants us to use a just balance and weight. Then, What is a just balance in weight? If you put something on a scale and its weight shows up different every single time, then it is not an accurate scale. So, equity not only means honest, but accurate as well. If you put one pound on a scale, then only one pound should be measured. If you put three pounds on a scale, then only three pounds should be measured. In this verse, God demands that the Israelites use honest scales, weights, ephahs, And hence, in other words, he is saying to not deceive or lie. So, when we speak of God's fairness, we are speaking of how he will reward those who do good as well as punish those who do evil. And we need to know that these are attributes that he will and must fulfill. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, it states, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. God demands that we show these same attributes. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 19 through 20 says, You shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. 
justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. I hope and pray that you and I will pursue justice in our lives just as God commands us to do. That's all for today, and I look forward to meeting with you again next week for our program series, Christianese 101. Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Have you ever noticed that a lot of books that deal with bad habits or addiction, they actually start with the behavior of acting out? And a lot of this material seems to be about us trying to control sin or manage sin. But that's not possible. I, I don't get it. We're human, which means we're not perfect, which of course means that we're sinners who desperately need our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why I will always teach on the unmanageability of sin. And see, that's why I think this material in these podcasts is different and it's so important to understand. It shows us that we've had many opportunities, many different choices to not choose our behavior, 
before we even get to this acting out phase or, or decision. These podcasts that started on January are from a larger lesson. It's called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. The Sex Spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are in the, in the habit or the bondage, the addiction to pornography. And make no doubt about it, man, porn is a series of predictable habits that we've created for ourselves. The bad news is that we don't even realize it, but the good news is that you're listening to a map. And, and when you know where you are inside your map, when you know where you are inside this habit, when you've got a map in your hands that you can follow, you can then choose to break the habit. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, how sex creates an atmosphere of fearlessness. Number two, what happens to our brains during an orgasm? And number three, how the consequences of sexual sin are like a tsunami wave. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is four criteria of sex addiction. You may or may not be an addict in here. But the reality is that there is no need to distinguish sexual sin from sexual addiction because they're both sin, right? One's just a habitual sin and one is recreational, thank you, recreational sin. Uh, there are four criteria of sexual addiction. When, when you talk about acting out, this is where you want to have this conversation because we're talking about this is where the pleasure actually is that you experience the pleasure in the acting out. So on your worksheet there, you'll see four criteria of sexual addiction. You can just make some notes if you want. Number one is the unmanageability. And this just means that you, you're admitting to yourself, you're admitting to your spouse, you're admitting to God that this thing is out of control, that you are literally just powerless over your pleasure. You know this by how much time that you've spent, how much money that you've spent, a lot of guys will go, well, wait a second, Dustin, I don't pay for porn. I just look at the free stuff. And I, uh, I go, well, okay, well, how's your tithing? There's $3,100 every second spent on pornography. And everybody's telling me they're not paying for pornography. They're, everybody's watching the free stuff. Somebody's paying for it, right? And by the way, most of us shop online. Credit cards are in our, our little computers here. Man, when you're looking for that free stuff, they got those spiders just waiting to rip your, your credit cards off and steal your identity and everything else. You spoke on tithing the other a couple of weeks ago to your, your local church. Lots of guys in porn don't do that. And I would just point you back to the same passage that Jerry quoted, Malachi 3.6. If you're not doing that, your money is cursed. Unmanageability also includes keeping track of your lies. Is it hard for you to keep track of all your lies? Have you acted out knowing that there would be serious consequences? You did this and you knew that something was going to happen. Marital consequences, legal consequences. Put yourself and others in danger by having unprotected sex. Number two is the progression and the tolerance. It's kind of a slow corruption it's a slow death 
you've got a, a secret immoral lifestyle that only you know about. One thing that we know that you're you got a serious problem with habitual sin is when you say that you want help, but you're unwilling to tell people the whole story. You're still holding 10, 15, 20% back because the shame has got you so wrapped up. And we, we refuse to tell people the story because we're still living inside the story of our unhealthy thoughts. We're still making our big decisions based out of unhealthy thoughts or shame right here. Number three, sex is mood altering. We all have a biology of, of sexual attraction. Sexual sin actually adjusts the neurochemistry in our brains um, in negative ways, not good ways. But the amazing thing is that the brain actually adjusts to what you put inside of it. So if, if you want more pornography, if you want more strip clubs, if you want more whatever, you simply indulge inside the, the actual sin and you got a couple different things that happen. You've got testosterone, dopamine, oxytocin, vasopressin. These are all chemicals that are inside the, what's called the prefrontal cortex of your brain, the pleasure center of your brain. And what happens is when you are acting out, when you have an orgasm, it actually shuts down your amygdala, which is part of your brain. And when that shuts down, you actually become worry-free. And it's almost like a sense of peace that you've been looking for. We all want peace. If we're worry-free, then we do have a sense of peace. And that's why we take such huge risk with this sin. So let's talk about the negative consequences. Take two minutes and write down ten negative consequences on the bottom of your sheet there. Ten negative consequences. By the time that we get to this trigger, it's way too late for sin management. In fact, that there really is no such thing as sin management. Um, there's so much buildup. There's so much unhealthy thoughts, the temptation itself, the resistance, the rationalization, the hiddenness. I mean, we're just going around the cycle. There is no way to manage anything. Because Why? Because we didn't pray, confess, or flee, and when we do that, we have trusted in the weakest person on the face of the planet, and that's ourselves. I mean, we can't even think through the, temp or the actual acting out, the promised pleasure to the consequences, can we? We don't even think that. But once we make the conscious and the willful decision to sin, and then we look back, and then we wish, and we pray that we wouldn't have done what we just did, it's way too late for that. The consequences are coming. There's no way to avoid, avoid them. So think of it like a tsunami wave, right? You guys all seen footage of tsunami waves. So you've got, you basically have, uh, you got the sea floor that shifts, boom, like this. And then the actual sea itself starts to tumble over like this. And this could be a thousand miles outside of out of land so it could take days to actually reach land but once it's like an earth think of an earthquake underneath the water boom this thing starts to shift that's what happens we go through this and especially right here to where we make that actual decision it's that tsunami starts to um, come towards us there's no way to avoid the tsunami wave in your life 
If you Google tsunami wave on YouTube, you'll understand the, the wrath of destruction that is coming your way. Same with tornadoes. So when we think on this side of acting out, so before we sin, we can either we think that we can either manage or eliminate the consequences over here. That's part of this, right? This rationalization. Not going to be that bad. I'm not going to get that. I'm not going to get caught. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs 14:12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. It seems like if I would just do this, it seems like if I I'll listen to some worship music instead of calling him. I'll replace that. I don't need. I don't need to send text. I don't need to engage. See, every time that we say something like that, we're trusting in ourselves, which is the weakest place on the face of the planet. Jesus had some pretty interesting things to say about habitual sin. Turn your Bibles to Mark nine forty three, the Gospel of Mark, chapter nine. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This is, these are the words of Jesus. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye and they have two eyes, then they have two eyes to be thrown in hell, where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. For everyone will be tested with fire. Flip over to Matthew 5, verse 27. Jesus says, you've heard the commandment that says don't commit adultery. I, I tell you, even, even the, the person who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye... Even your good eye causes you to lust, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your hand, even your strong hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. So what's the point? What's, is Jesus being hyperbolic here? Is he exaggerating or is he being literal? The, the reality is that... My personal theological view is this, is that Jesus is being hyperbolic here. He's making this unbelievably, this claim that's so radical to get your attention. Because even if one of us did that in here, if I did, if I gouged my eye out, would I still be able to lust? If I gouged both my eyes out, would I still be able to lust? If I cut my hand off, would I still be able to steal what he's saying is, this is a heart issue, guys. But it's so serious that I'm going to make these unbelievable claims to get your attention. Because the, the bigger point to this is, if you gouge your eye out, and you're still doing what you've always done, and there's nothing in you that is prompting you to change, that's where the real problem is. Because the Holy, if you've accepted Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you, He's prompting you to change unless you've quenched Him so much that He's not. But you can still, you can still work on that. But the, re, the reality is, is that this is a struggle. This is, 
This is something that we should be fighting against every time that we enter into the spiral itself. We shouldn't be put on robot mode or, or um, just automatic. And as soon as we, we become aware of something, that we just give in. That, I believe that's the point of Jesus. It was an interesting conversation in that we were having a, in seminary class about this passage. It was interesting to get the other take with, with some of the other men. Is it literal? I don't know. It's kind of where you, you get to make your own choice, right? You get to actually do your own, what's called exegete the, the actual scripture and work it out yourself. The, the whole issue here is that we don't get to this point. Because as soon as you go into hiding, you're going to go act out. And then as soon as you act out, you're going to go withdraw yourself. You're going to go isolate yourself and pull and pull yourself away. So let's get into our groups. Let's talk about the consequences. Did everybody come up with 10? One time I had to do this, we had to come up with 100. When you start thinking about how your behavior sets off a domino effect of the relationships around you, you're going to find out that your sin has hurt dozens of other people that you would never even think of. Yeah, 100, 100 consequences. So let's, uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about your week. Let's confess sin. And let's ta- also talk about, are you guys in the battle with this? Do we recognize this as something that Jesus says, look, if this habitual sin is in your life, let's do something about it. Let's do something drastic about it. I remember the, for the first, I don't know, three or four or five years, I was yelling at you guys. I would always say, get rid of the cable. Get rid of your cable. Get rid of your cable. What do you... He literally told me, I will never get rid of my cable. I'll never do it. Two years later, guess what? He got rid of his cable. Some very practical and sensible things to think about as we wrap this lesson up today. So what about you? Have you ever considered getting rid of your cable? (laughs) What about your TV? You know, I got to tell you, Amy and I did that for about five years. And it was really, it was cool, man. It was great. It it allowed me to detox from the world. Um, I didn't watch any news. That just kind of amped me up all the time. And, And it obviously it reduced the temptation of, of lust. It also brought our marriage closer together because instead of sitting together, staring at a box, we were able to actually talk without interruption. Today, Amy and I, we do watch television. Uh, It's only through a smart TV to where we've got better control of what we watch together. Have you ever considered what is causing you to stumble right now? Have you heard the promptings of the Lord in this area to to get rid of of something in your life, but you're just waiting and and you're hesitating? Well, we all have, and I want to share with you that the Lord isn't a cosmic uh, killjoy in this area. He's simply trying to protect you from you. Uh, I love what Pastor James McDonald says. He says, when God says don't, he's saying Don't hurt yourself. Have you waited to install a filtering software on your computer, your phone? Why do you think that is? Really? I mean, 
are we telling ourselves, you know, well, it's just, it's, it's going to take too long to install and set up and it might make my computer do this and that. Um, are you telling yourself, oh, I don't want to pay a monthly fee? Hmm. What's the real reason? Better yet, I, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord what the real reason is why you haven't done this yet. I've personally used Covenant Eyes filtering software for years. You know, it allows me to avoid exposing myself. It allows me to avoid doing something stupid like searching for porn when I'm at a weak moment. It protects my family and my friends from the evils of pornography. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly community group. It's for men and women, husbands and wives, single, divorce, everyone. And I mean everybody is invited. Uh, we meet at Northern Hills Community Church Tuesdays at 7 p.m. And we're in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor, And I would love to hear from you. If you got a question uh, that you'd like me to respond to, you can email me at DustinDanielsRadio.com. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.20, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. The power that's in the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I come I confess Bowing here I find my rest Without you I fall apart You're the one That guides my heart Lord, I need you Oh, Temptation comes my way. When
When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and app. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller. Of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Counterculture for the Common Good, based on Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 16. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. So each week we're taking a look at one part of Redeemer's core values, vision, the animating principles that uh, stem from the gospel, that have shaped our ministry in the city for all the years in the past, and we pray for all the years in the future. Uh, That vision is actually on our website. This is it. As the church of Jesus Christ, Redeemer exists to help build a great city for all people through a movement of the gospel that brings personal conversion, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal to New York City, and through it, the world. And the one piece we're picking out tonight is that term that I just read, community, community formation. We believe that the gospel actually doesn't work in your life and it doesn't present itself to the world without a community. We believe the church should be, can be, a counterculture for the common good. Put another way, the gospel creates a community, a city, as we're going to see, that evokes both animosity and attraction, and yet is blessed. The gospel creates a community which evokes both animosity and attraction, and yet is blessed. That's what our text tells us. Famous passage here from the Sermon on the Mount. Let's take a look at, first of all, down in verse 14 and 15. Jesus is talking to his disciples and says, you are the light of the world. And then it seems like he 
mixes metaphors or shifts metaphors and says, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, by the way, it's the Greek word polis there. It's the word that you probably may recognize, the Greek word for city. This is the only translation I've ever seen in my entire life that translates polis town. It's always usually city. So Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. Now, that looks like two different metaphors so you realize he's actually got one coherent picture in his mind. In ancient times, at night, if a city was on a hill or even on a little bit of a rise, its torches and its lamps and its fires could be seen for miles and miles and miles out into the dark. The light of the city penetrated the darkness for miles. So when the Bible talks about light, it's usually talking about truth. Light exposes things for what they are. And when the Bible talks about the light of the world, it's talking about God showing the world the truth of who he is. Now, the supreme light of the world, as he himself has said, is Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the supreme way that God shows the world the truth of who he is. But the other main way that God shows the world his, who he is, the other main light of the world is not individual Christians, but Christians as a city, Christians as a community, Christians as an alternate society, as an alternate city in every city in which they live. It's only as a community that we are actually the light of the world. According to this, not actually as individuals. You say, well, why would that be? What's so big about being a community? You know, 80% of Americans say you can be a very good Christian without going to church at all. That's not what this text says at all. You can't be the light of the world because you can't be a city by yourself. You can only actually bring light into the world as part of a community. Why? Well, here's why. What is the gospel about? At bottom, it's about healing relationships. First, it's healing the relationship with God, of course. But then because our relationship with God is healed, then all other relationships can be healed. You say, how does that work? Well, like this. You know, a solar system only is a system because all the planets agree, as it were, on one center. All the planets are orbiting around the same center. They all agree that the, the sun is the center of the solar system. And because of that, the orbits are all in harmony, right? But if every single planet as it were, we're insisting that it be the center of the system, that everything revolve around them. If every planet was saying, no, you have to revolve around me, you wouldn't have a system anymore. It would just be a disaster. It would be a car crash. It would be a collision. Now, let me shift metaphors myself. I hate cancer. (laughs) Cancer has taken away a number of friends and family members of mine. But there's a relational cancer. There's a spiritual cancer deep default mode of the human heart, instinctive, to say, me first. So for example, if you go into a marriage, marriage in some ways is the most intense kind of human community, right? In a marriage, if both people are saying to the other, you first, you first, I'm putting your needs ahead of mine. If both people are saying you first, you're going to have a great love relationship. But if If either one or both, hear that? If either one or both say, me first, it's like a cancer eating at the marriage. 
It might not survive. Now, the me first impulse is absolutely natural. If any of you have ever raised children, you know that you don't have to teach children to say me first. Me first! It's like they're born saying it practically, or at least they're born feeling it until they have the words to say it. And what we have all learned from our parents, those of us who said, me first, me first, what we've all learned from our parents is what? To hide it. (laughs) To not say it. And I guess our parents even maybe are saying we shouldn't even feel that way, but of course the fact is all we've learned to do as we get older is we hide it. Little children just let it all hang out. We can't get rid of it unless something radical happens to us. And this is the reason why the gospel starts with repentance and faith. You become a Christian only through repentance and faith. Why? Repentance is admitting that your whole life is permeated with self-centeredness. You see, repentance is not just, oh, I've done some bad things. Everybody says that. That doesn't change your life. That doesn't connect you to God. Saving repentance connects you to God. It's not just saying, oh, I've done bad things. Everybody knows they've done bad things. That's not repentance. Repentance is saying that self-centeredness, self-absorption, self-righteousness, me first, has, it permeates everything, not only my bad deeds, but my good deeds. You have begun to become a Christian when you realize even my good deeds I've been doing to try to control God and control people, and even my good deeds are done in self-righteousness and self-regard. So repentance is that Christianity starts with saying, I realize that my big problem is me first. And then repentance and faith, the other flip side is faith, because repentance, you admit you need salvation, but faith is saying, I see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave himself for me and loves me, and gave himself for me so he can love me forever. And it's repentance and faith together that not only makes you ashamed of being self-centered, but it makes it unnecessary. Because you're humbled, yet you're affirmed. You're loved. And it's repentance and faith that actually, in a sense, puts your spiritual relational cancer into remission. You know, I hate to, like I said, I hate cancer, and therefore I even feel a little weird about extending this metaphor. The fact is that when your cancer is in remission, you're still not all there, and yet, you know, you're getting better. And the same way, when you become a Christian, something has happened. The transforming grace of God has gone into your heart, and it has actually given a death blow to me first. But the Bible says, old self, new self, we still have plenty of me-firstness in us. We can go back and forth between old self and new self, but the fact is that there has been a death blow to that. And the Christians are people who have all experienced that death blow to the me-first. And that enables you, even though we're still quite imperfect and quite uh, capable of doing me-first, nevertheless, Christians now have got the ability to create a kind of deep human community that nobody else can. A kind of human community, it makes us want across the kind of barriers that, that divide other people, across the racial barriers, across the national barriers, across the cultural barriers, across the, the class barriers. And not only that, somebody says, well, what kind of community is it? Well, it tells you here, it's a city. See, everybody uses the word community now. Everybody uses the word community. And uh, so, for example, I did see a reference to the stamp collecting community. So if you're a stamp collector, you get together with other stamp collectors and you're called a stamp collector community. But the reality is it probably would be better to call that the stamp collector club. In fact, in old days, that, those things were called clubs. Because what it meant was you had one thing in common, but not necessarily anything else. Stamp collecting does not transform your whole life. 
You see, when you're part of a city, when you're being, living in a city changes everything. Changes the way you eat, changes the way you dress, changes the way you relate to people. Living in a city or living in a culture changes everything. And when it says Christians are a city, an alternate city, what it means is what John Stott said. When he wrote his commentary years ago on the Sermon on the Mount, the subtitle of it, the title was it, The Sermon on the Mount. That was the name of the book, okay? But the subtitle was The Christian Counterculture. Because he says the gospel actually changes everything. So, for example, because it's come in and done a death blow to me first, it changes your psychology. It changes the way you relate to people. It makes you more able to forgive, by the way. More able to reconcile. You can do a certain amount of self-renunciation without killing your self-esteem. It also changes the way you look at sex, money, and power, according to John Stott. Why? Well, you see, once you get rid of the me first thing, sex becomes not a way of individual fulfillment, but a way of self-giving and the creation of community. Money's the same. Power's the same way. Those are radically different than the way they operate in the world. And therefore, what happens is the gospel creates a community. It's a radically different community. It's based on everybody having this experience, this encounter with God. It actually does a death blow to your ego in a particular way. And that changes the way in which you look at everything, the way you do business, the way you relate to the poor, the way you do your work, the way you relate to people of other, you know, from other cultural backgrounds. It changes everything. And it's only as you are part of a community like that, and only as those communities are created, that God says, I can show the world who I am. You are the light of the world. In fact, I'll press you a little just one further. If you want God's truth and light to come into your life and change you, or if you want God's truth and light to go out into the world and, and you know, enlighten a darkened world, you got to be part of a community. You know who you are. See, if you're American or even kind of Americanized, if you're an American or even if you've been here a long time, so you're kind of Americanized, you might believe what the culture says, which is that you're mainly the product of your own personal choices. That's just not true. To a great degree, you're the product. In fact, to the greatest degree, you are a product of community. How you were treated the first three or four years by your family has a massive impact on who you are. The language you grew up speaking as the main language you speak and think in, which you, by the way, didn't choose, has a massive impact on how you look at life. Sociologists, anthropologists will tell you about that. Your relationship to your parents, your relationship to your siblings, your relationship, your birth order, your ethnic background, uh, your, uh, where you went to school, who your friends are, these things are all community things, and they have shaped you tremendously. In fact, almost all of your individual choices have actually been just responses to those things. So now, how would you want God to change your life? You say, oh, I want God's power to come into my life. I want his light to come into my life. I want him to make me better. I want him to, to change me. Fine, how would he do that? He would do it through community. Why? Because we are irreducibly social beings. And you tend to become like the people you hang out with the most. And for you to think that somehow you'd be the result of a community and then you want God to change you without being part of his community, well, that just won't work, will it? You cannot show the world who he is and you cannot even yourself see who he is. You can't have his life shine into your life and into the world unless we create communities. And that does not just mean, by the way, coming two or three times a month to church because you like the music and you like the sermon. That's not being part of a community. That's not being part of a city. That's not being part of an alternate human society. 
where we really are committed to each other, where we're accountable to each other, where we're trying to work out what does it mean to be, what is the gospel implications, what are the gospel implications on art and for business, the gospel implications for how I relate to my neighborhood? Are you part of a city? I mean, that is to say, are you part of God's city? Are you a citizen of his city? Are you part of a community? Are you cemented in? Are you a participant? So the gospel creates community, which is the main point of this passage, but there's two other points that are very important. The second thing is that this community, if it's a real gospel community, if it really represents Jesus Christ, will evoke both animosity and, at the same time, attraction. It'll be both off-putting and compelling. It's one of the main teachings of this passage, of course, but throughout the New Testament. How so? Well, first of all, we already saw that we're light of the world. And, of course, light is attractive, is it not? And what does it mean to be the light of the world? Well, look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I'll get back to that word good deeds in a second. That doesn't mean just niceness. Good deeds actually are what we would call, we talked about this two or three weeks ago, deeds of justice and mercy. This is sacrificial service. This is showing a commitment to the good of your neighborhood or your city. It means generosity. It means involving yourself in the lives of people with greater needs than you have. That's light, and that's attractive, is it not? But by the way, there's another side to light, and that is light exposes Light shows your warts. Light is attractive. At the same time, it can be pretty off-putting. Sometimes we'd rather be in a dark place. On the other hand, let's look at the the other metaphor, salt. You are the salt of the earth. Now, the term salt is, again, positive. Uh, Today, the word salt means seasoning, and back then it was seasoning. Salt made things savory. Salt made things tasty. That's very positive. But on the other hand, salt in ancient times, more than today, was a preservative. They, you know, back in that day, there wasn't, you didn't have refrigeration. And so how did you preserve your meat? You rubbed salt into it, which actually killed the little organisms, or at least it slowed down the growth of the organisms that make meat decay. Now, what does it mean to be salt of the earth? Well, it kind of, here's the hint. And think about this, everybody. And this, by the way, is, I have never, ever been more convicted about how I should be living in this world than when I thought out this metaphor that Jesus Christ gives us that we're supposed to be salt. Salt's a preservative, and here's what this means. Do you not ever notice that human relations, well, I mean, we already talked about this, human relationships are always blowing up. Family relationships, friendships, people at work. Not, I'm not just talking about nations and races and things like that. I mean, those relationships are always blowing up and going into violence and conflict. But I'm just saying normal human relationships are always blowing up. People are always getting upset, always getting, I'm not getting mine, or you've misunderstood me, or you have wronged me, and people are always getting angry and bitter. And for Christians to be salt means we don't do that. We go into the workplace. We go into friendships in our family. We're the ones who are not turf conscious. We're the ones who are overlook a slight We're the ones who are not irritable. We're the ones who are never feeling like, well, I'm not getting mine. We're salt. We're preservative. We're the thing that keeps the relationships going. We are not always getting upset and getting huffy and getting angry and shooting off angry emails and then having to 
apologize. We're supposed to be the ones who don't do that. Aren't you convicted? Misery loves company. That's why I'm trying to, I want you to be as miserable as I am. But it's also true, of course, it's not just true that we're supposed to be salt in relations. We're supposed to be salt in society. We're supposed to be doing justice and mercy. We're supposed to be making our neighborhoods and our city vastly better places than they would be if we weren't out there. Why? Well, the word good deeds really does mean to pour yourself out. Now look carefully. Salt and light. Salt also stings. You put it in a wound. You know, one of the reasons why in ancient times putting salt on a wound, um, and it's still done sometimes, especially you're out in the wilderness or something like that, it kills the same bacteria, just the same stuff that actually uh, keeps meat from decaying faster, can also kill a certain amount of bacteria in your wound. And therefore, you know, it helps, but it stings. It's good, but it's off-putting. Light is beautiful, but it's exposing. And look what Jesus gives us here. At the bottom, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. That is to say that if we're living the way we ought to live in this city, and I'm not saying we are, but if we're living as generous, if we're living as lovingly, if we really are salt in relationships and salt and light in the city, then some people are going to be very attracted. They're going to say, this is great. This help- I want to know about your father. That's verse 16. And then verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Let me show you three things here. Number one, it doesn't say blessed are you if people insult you. You know, sorry to dash your hopes. It says blessed are you when people insult you. If you are living as light and salt, you will be hurt. If you're living as light and salt, sometimes you will be hurt. You will be hurt. You will sometimes get insulted. Okay? That's the first thing. It's going to happen. Secondly, you've got to make sure that people, are, if they do insult you and say false things about you, it's because of me, Jesus says. 1 Peter 4.15, Peter says, make sure you suffer for Jesus' sake and not because you're a meddler. And what that means is, I do know Christians, and surely you do too, and maybe you are one of them, who love to tell people how they ought to live their life. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. No, that's wrong. You shouldn't. That's wrong. And then you find people shunning you. You say, oh, I'm being shunned for Jesus. No, you're being shunned, Peter says, because you're obnoxious. And that's, the beatitude doesn't work for obnoxiousness. You know, blessed are you when people speak, you know, or insult you because of me, not because of you. He doesn't say, <laughs> yeah, the point is, it's inevitable. It has to be for his sake. But here's what's really fascinating. He says, and by the way, this is significant. In a place like New York where everything, so many things happen relationally, if, some, if a couple of people start saying, oh my gosh, he or she goes to a church like that and they believe these sorts of things, that can really hurt you. It can keep you from getting gigs. It can keep you from getting jobs. It can keep you from getting, you know, working on projects. It can really hurt you. So the fact is that blessed are you when people insult you. And then he says, rejoice, don't feel self-pity. Don't get embattled. Don't get angry. Don't say, I'm not being treated properly. You know what? That's the the me first thing. Some years ago, a minister friend of mine gave this sermon illustration. It turned out, originally, this is a true story. He was walking along in some park area, and he saw a little animal with its head stuck in a cocoa can. And it was just panicking because it couldn't get its head out. 
And the minister thought, ah, sermon illustration. That's how some people like, that's how we live our lives. Sermon illustration. He says, ah, this is how human beings are. Things that they think will satisfy them actually just, you know, imprison them. Well, by the way, I don't think that works. And he didn't use it that way because here's what happened. As he leaned over to try to help the poor little woodland creature, he noticed it was a skunk. And he realized it's possible, just possible, that this little woodland creature might not be completely grateful and overjoyed and, uh, and may not recognize, you know, his help. And he realized, he said, I have, a, I, got a, I have a decision to make. And as he said, well, you know, and actually being ministers, we're always thinking, well, this is like a sermon illustration. And he actually operated like a sermon illustration. He said, I can't be cowardly. I've got to know that if I help this person, I might get zapped. But there's no reason why I shouldn't stand downwind. So what he did was, of course, was he said, yeah, help it, but help it from that end, not, you know, make sure that the end that can zap you is in a different direction. So be judicious. But here's the point. If you're going to be salt and light, you're going to get hurt. You shouldn't whine about it. You should not be feeling full of self-pity. There's going to be people who you're trying to help who are just, they're going to zap you and they will not be They're like the little woodland creature who was not particularly grateful. I don't actually know what happened, by the way, in the illustration. Now, here's the question. The vision here is wonderful. It says we're supposed to be a counterculture for the common good. That means, on the one hand, we're supposed to be willing to identify as Christians and not get all bent out of shape when people may insult us or say bad things about us. Because, you see, if if we get all upset and get self-righteous and and uh, become embattled and all that, then we were a counterculture, but we really won't be there for the common good. We'll just be condemning people all the time. On the other hand, if you're so cowardly that if you've put your light under a bowl so that you never get animosity, nobody ever, ever, ever knocks you for your faith. That means you've been a coward. You might be for the common good, but you're not a counterculture. How do you get the, the inner, I guess, poise is the best way on the one hand, not be afraid of speaking up, identifying yourself as a Christian, so you know that sometimes you're going to get hurt, but at the same time willing to be salt and light, not just embattled, not just always standing on your dignity, not just always denouncing the culture. Where do we get this inner poise? Well, here's the answer. You've got to be blessed. Now, the last beatitude is this one. The first 10 verses of chapter 5 are very famous. They're called the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty, for they shall be filled. Okay. And then the last one here is, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. These are called the Beatitudes. And it's the word blessed. You will be blessed if you do this, blessed if you do this. Now, Bible scholars will tell us that it's, this is a more problematic passage than you might think. It's, they're famous. And when you see the word blessed in English, you immediately say, yeah, that, that's just an older archaic way of saying happy. Happy are those, happy are the poor for they, happy are those who mourn, happy are the meek. Not, that's actually not exactly, it's partly right. But the word blessed means a lot more than that. And Old Testament and New Testament scholars who know how this word is used both in the Old and New Testament, say probably, I know this is going to sound a little weird, a better translation of this word is successful. 
People who were called blessed were considered successful, accomplished. People who had lived so well, they were envied and emulated. They were role models. They were heroes. And so frankly, anybody who understands how this word functions, that the word blessed actually means successful and accomplished, reads the Beatitudes and says, look, it makes sense to say, blessed are the strong for they will inherit the earth. The meek don't inherit the earth. It makes sense to say, blessed are the popular, for they shall get reward. But the persecuted don't get a reward. It's one thing to say, blessed are the rich, you know, because they inherit the kingdom generally, but not the poor don't inherit the kingdom. What's going on here? And there's only one answer. Someone came into this world, Jesus Christ, who completely redefined what it means to be successful and accomplished. Because the Beatitudes, before they point to you and me, how we should live, they point to him. Did you know that? Listen, let me ask you a question. I'm asking this to Christians in here. Christian brothers and sisters, why is it that you and I eventually will be, according to the Bible, rich as kings? Because he became poor. Why will you and I be comforted Because he wept, grieved, and died in the dark. Why are you and I going to inherit the earth? Because he was meek, because he was a lamb, because he was like a lamb taken to to the slaughter. Why are we going to be filled? Because he on the cross said, I thirst. Starting to see what's going on here? See, if Jesus Christ had come, rich, laughing, strong, popular, he wouldn't have been successful. Why? What did he come to do? He came to save us. He took our curse. He took the things we deserve for all of our me-firstness. He took the penalty we deserve for the mess we've made the world. He went to the cross and took our punishment so that he took the curse so that we could be blessed. He became poor so we could become rich. He became empty so we could become full, filled. And here's what that means. When I see Jesus Christ being persecuted, saving me by being persecuted without any self-pity, then I can do that too. When I see Jesus Christ pouring himself out, he's salt, he's light, pouring himself out for other people, people who don't care even, people who are his enemies, pouring himself out, I can do that now. Why? Because, I mean... The knowledge of what he did for me, it's a blow to my me first heart. There it is. Before, look at him giving all that away and then you can give it away. Look at him being persecuted without self-pity, then you will be able to do it too. Be the city that God wants us to be in this city by looking to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for all all the ways in which you have told us we can be the family, we can be the mini city, we can be the community here in the middle of New York City that our hearts really long for. We want to be part of a family, we want to be part of a church, we want to be part of a community like that. And we pray now that you would just, uh, with the uh, impetus of the Spirit and with the guidance of your word, that you would make us more people, more men and women who can comprise a community like that. Truly is the light of the world. 
We ask for it through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.